0: Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. We often leave
1: out the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and somehow we've gotten in our minds that you just trust Him as Savior here, and years down the line you'll trust Him as Lord. Where is that in the Bible? When you receive Christ, there must be a submission to His Lordship. Now that deepens as we grow in Him. But anything short of that is easy believism, which is no believism at all.
0: I've heard the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person put rather crudely but accurately as the difference between sheep and pigs. They both get dirty, but the pigs like it and the sheep don't. The desire not to sin and the remorse when we do sin shows us that we have been changed. And that change happens at the moment of salvation. There are other signs of conversion, and we'll get into those today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Verse by Verse is a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Back in 1982, Pastor Steve was preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John, When he came to Jesus' wonderful promises in chapter 10 about our eternal security, he paused there to elaborate. That pause turned into eight messages that we have turned into a series of 24 lessons called Safety for the Sheep. The tapes we started with sound pretty old, but the message of our security in Christ is as bright and crisp as ever. And it's pretty amazing how modern computer technology can revive old tapes. The Apostle John said near the end of his first general epistle, that he wrote it so that people who trust Jesus can know that they are saved. As we near the conclusion of this series on our security, it's time we also look into our assurance. Are you sure you're saved? If you're not sure, it may be for several reasons. Here's Pastor Steve to help us deal with those reasons.
1: When the Christians John wrote to in his first epistle were struggling and doubting their salvation, did John tell them, Did John tell them to think back to when they were saved? I mean, did he say, I write these things to you that you might be able to date your salvation? Think back. Did he say, think back to the time when you heard the God? No. Uh, Did he tell them to pull out their spiritual birth certificate cards and check out the date they signed it? No, never did that. Never said, well, just, just open your wallet or whatever they carried and just look at the date you signed it, according to the Jewish calendar. He never said that. Or the Greek calendar. Someone got that. Thank you. Or did he say, look, I want you to go back home, have a talk with your parents or the person who led you to Christ and find out when you prayed the sinner's prayer. No, he never did any of those things. He called upon them to examine their lives now, the present time. He wasn't interested back then. He's interested now because now is the time that produces the fruit in your life. And I think there are a lot of Christians who, who uh, if they get all upset about dates, and I think there are many, myself included, who thought at one time we were saved back here when in reality we were saved here and we don't even know. I don't know the time I was saved. When I initially called on the Lord and I thought that I was saved, then I, I really, and only God knows, I don't think I really uh, was saved. I, I don't think I had true repentance. I don't think I had true faith. I think that was the process by which the Lord was drawing me. And I was an adult when I was saved. I was 18 years old. This isn't just for children you know sometimes they think, well it's all right if children don't know but not adults that's not true i can't tell you the exact time that i came to faith in the lord and some misunderstand assurance because uh, they're they're looking for feelings for feelings that accompany salvation feelings that's a dangerous thing see god calls us to have faith in his word Faith in the facts of his word, not in our feelings. And some people don't think that they're saved because they they anticipated a great emotional earthquake, a spiritual earthquake when they were saved. And, and when they trusted the Lord, it didn't happen. They didn't hear fireworks. They didn't hear the, the clouds, thunder in the sky. Very non-emotional experience. And so they begun to think that Maybe it didn't happen in their life. Maybe they didn't have a genuine experience because if they did, they'd feel different. They they pictured this, this great feeling coming over them for so long in anticipation of salvation. It didn't come and they wonder if they've even been saved to begin with. Because what they thought was synonymous with salvation really wasn't. And they're troubled. And they get more troubled when they hear folks talk about their great emotional experiences they had at salvation. And the, the implication is, if I've had it, you need to have it too. And if you don't have it, maybe you don't have the salvation that I have. And that's absolutely false. Listen, everyone has the same experience in salvation. Everyone. You can only be saved one way, by grace through faith in Christ. Everyone has that experience. Now, the circumstances that surround that experience are completely different with everybody. And you know what? It really isn't important whether somebody had a great emotional feeling or not. It really isn't. What's important is that God did something. He saved us. See, salvation is the work of God. And whether you have spiritual goosebumps when you have your salvation really doesn't matter. It's unimportant. In fact, it could even be dangerous because we begin to, to try to recreate those feelings and they just don't happen, and so we can often get disillusioned. But every believer has the same experience of salvation. We just have different circumstances that, that surround that, and, and the great danger is comparing your salvation with others. And many times what happens is children who, who were saved, uh, they grow up to be adults, they look back and they say, oh, I didn't have the same experience this person had. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a, a road to Damascus experience. And you know, that's really unimportant. You had the same experience as the person who trembled and shook and fell on the ground and cried. And you had the same, you were saved. That's the work of God. These other things really, uh, we make so much fuss about them. We think they're so wonderful. Usually if the people weren't in in gross sin, they wouldn't have these great experiences anyway. So the, the greatest Thing is to be saved as a little child, so you don't have to have terrible guilt, and you don't have to have terrible emptiness, and that's that's what it's all about—trusting the Lord, not how uh, how moved you were. You see, God uses a different cir- a set of circumstances in each one of us because He deals with us as individuals. Nobody's alike. Some have greater intensity of guilt, some have a deeper sense of incompleteness, some have a greater theological understanding of their need, and so they respond differently, but how you respond is not the issue. The issue is that salvation is a work of God, and he saves you the same way as he saves anybody else. So we've seen that that struggles about assurance can arise when our lives are willfully disobedient, when we base our assurance on dates, when we long for feelings of salvation, but there's another reason we can have assurance problems. Someone may not be, uh, have assurance because they may not be saved in the first place. I don't want to discourage you in case you think you have assurance. I just want to deal with this issue from all the, the angles. But some who doubt their salvation may doubt because they may not be saved. And they have a legitimate right to doubt. You see, this is the danger of our age, because there are many people who live under the delusion that they're saved, and fortunately, what we've done is often given people false assurance. That's one of the things that, that bothers me. We can never tell somebody they're saved. Don't ever tell someone they're saved. You don't know that. You don't know that, but I've, I've seen people say, now, this is what it says, and you are saved. Not necessarily true. And I think there's something even more serious than that. Often our witness is, is, is off. And let me be very sober about this. We often think that the only problem in evangelism is our methodology. That's not true. There may be problems with that. There are problems with that at times. But I see a graver problem than our methodology. I see that some of us have forgotten the message of salvation. Some of us who have listened so much to different techniques that we have lost the real message of the gospel. You say, what are you you saying? Let Let me explain. We often leave out crucial elements in the plan of salvation as we witness to someone. What am I talking about? We leave out often repentance. In fact, there are many people who don't feel that repentance is even necessary. Repentance is a change of mind. It is a forsaking of sin. That is necessary. Jesus preached it. Paul preached it. Peter preached it. The early apostles preached it. Even John the Baptist preached it. It is throughout the Gospels that repentance is necessary. We often leave out the lordship of Jesus Christ, and somehow we've gotten in our minds that you just trust him as Savior here, and years down the line, you'll trust him as Lord. Where is that in the Bible? When you receive Christ, there must be a submission to his lordship. Now, that deepens as we grow in him. But anything short of that is easy believism, which is no believism at all. It's going up to a person, I've seen this with people, going up to a person and saying things like, well, do you believe Christ died for you? Sure I do. You believe he's God? Sure I do. Well, welcome to God's family. Listen, anybody can be manipulated that way. I've seen this with little kids. I guarantee I could get, and I'm not boasting about this, it's a terrible thing, but I could get, and any one of us here could get any kid, any youngster in our Sunday school department to raise his hand and say a prayer of salvation. You wouldn't know the first thing about what true repentance is, what faith is, what submission to the Lordship of Christ is. I'll tell you another thing that we often leave out, the holy nature of God's character. No one can understand what, what being a sinner is all about unless they understand how holy God is. When Isaiah understood that, he cursed himself. When Peter understood that, he told the Lord to depart from him because he was a wicked man. You don't share the gospel unless you share the holy character of God. And it's not telling a person just that God loves them. You've got to go deeper. You've got to tell them God's nature, God's holiness. Only will they understand sin against the background of the holy character of God. Instead, what do we emphasize? And I'm not just rebuking you. I'm rebuking myself as well. And as I've thought through these things, God has deeply worked in in my life to bring me to a greater understanding of the message that we ought to proclaim. Instead, what do we do? We emphasize going forward in a public meeting. We emphasize verbally confessing sin. We emphasize that we ought to pray with a counselor. We emphasize just ask for forgiveness. We emphasize outward things, and we neglect internal attitudes of repentance and submission to his lordship. Walter Chantry wrote a book in the early 70s called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic. And here's what he had to say in one of its pages. He says, products of modern evangelism are often sad examples of Christianity. They make a profession of faith and then continue to live like the world. Decisions for Christ may mean, uh, mean very little. Only a small proportion of those who make decisions evidence the grace of God in a transformed life. When the excitement of the latest campaign has subsided, when the choir sings no more thrilling choruses, when large crowds no, no longer gather, when the emotional hope in the evangelist's invitation has moved to another city, what do we have that's real and lasting? When every house in our mission village has been visited, what has been done? The honest heart answers very little. There has been a great deal of noise and dramatic excitement, but God has not come down with his frightful power in converting grace. All of this is related to the use of a message in evangelism that is unbiblical. The truth necessary for life has been hidden in a smokescreen of human inventions. On the shallow grounds of man's logic, large numbers have been led to assume that they have a right to everlasting life and have been given an assurance which does not belong to them. Evangelicals are swelling the ranks of the deluded with a perverted gospel. Many who have made decisions in modern churches have been told in the inquiry rooms that their sins have been forgiven, and they'll be surprised to hear, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, we're not against coming forward, and we're not against praying with the counselor, and we're not against having a, a room where people can be dealt with, but we're against leaving out vital parts of the gospel, and we're against the thought that that is equating salvation that's one of the reasons that I don't give an invitation until after the service. Because I've been confronted with so many people who think that because they walked an aisle, they shook a pastor's hand, that they're saying they, they, they laid down at the altar and now they're born again. I've seen people cry at the altar. I've seen, seen people be moved deeply. But they never came to faith in Christ. See, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. of That is, that is simply human inventions. By the way, this is not an altar. it was, we'd sacrifice animals here. This isn't an altar. It's a prayer rail. See, so don't, don't let the culture of your day distort the gospel. Coming forward is not salvation. And I want to illustrate it to you from Mark chapter 10. I want to show you about a young man who came forward. Mark chapter 10. I'm very, very serious about this because I think that we are, as Chantry says, swelling the ranks with people who are not saved. And it's no wonder that so many don't live godly lives because they're rotten trees. And all the time we think that, well, they're just carnal. Now, maybe they are carnal. Maybe they're really Christians like the Corinthians who are carnal. But I would dare say, without ever mentioning any statistics, I would have no idea of this, but I would dare say that many people who we suspect of being carnal have never been born again to begin with. I mean, wasn't it the Gallup poll that said there are millions of Americans? Millions! Who are truly born again? If that's true, then something is wrong with our lifestyle. There aren't there aren't uh, that many. I could say that as Gallup has said. There are many who think they are. But Mark chapter ten, we read about a rich young ruler. Now this this fellow ran forward. He didn't listen. He didn't even run forward in a church service. He ran forward to Jesus. That's far better, right? He never came to know the Lord. Oh, he was sincere. He was serious. We would have snatched. We would have prayed with him. We would have we would have sent him on his way. We would have given him a card to sign. We would have told him he was saved. We would have told. We would have invited him back for next Sunday. We would have asked him to be baptized and, and then suggested he become a member. And Jesus never did, and we need to learn a lesson from him. Mark chapter ten, verse seventeen. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what better situation could you ask for? I mean, this young man came running to Jesus. He came running, and Jesus didn't even have to have small talk with him. I mean, this man said, Tell me how I could could be in the kingdom. Tell me how I could have eternal life. Now, look what Jesus says. First of all, if it, let me say, if it were us, we would have had him confess his sin, ask for forgiveness, sent him on his way. But look what Jesus did. Verse 18 Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you ever wonder why did he say that? Because this man didn't recognize that Jesus was God. All he thought of was that Jesus was a good teacher, he was a good man. And he came up to Jesus just thinking that Jesus was a man, and he frivolously used a term that can only be applied to God. And what Jesus was doing is condemning this man's frivolous attitude towards the holy character of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? If this man recognized that Christ was God, he wouldn't wouldn't have said this. But to this young ruler, rich young ruler, he thought that Jesus was just another rabbi. And yet he called him a name, an expression, good, that can only be applied to God. And Jesus is rebuking him for that. He said, why do you call me good? And I can paraphrase by saying, you thinking that I am just a man, why do you address me as good? No one is good except God alone. What was he doing? He's stressing the the fact that the first thing the man needs to realize before having eternal life and before receiving Christ is that God is good and holy. That is God's nature, and that's the thing that we need to stress, the character of God. Who he is. You see, sometimes our presentation of the gospel is man-centered, and that's wrong. It ought to be God-centered, right? We tell a person now, if you do this and you do this, you'll have this and you'll have this. That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong approach. The right approach is, regardless of what happens to you, you ought to come to Christ simply because of who he is. God is worthy, of our submission to his authority, and and whether he gives you uh, this blessing or that blessing is not the issue. So we ought to be God-censored in our presentation of the gospel, not man-censored. Then Jesus stressed the moral law of God, verse 19. You know he said the commandments, and he he went through a number of the commandments. Why did he do that? Because the moral law of God is the expression of God's holy character. You know we need to preach law, we need to preach more about the law, not as an expression of being saved. No one gets saved by keeping the law, but by the law, men know that they're sinners. And we neglect that, don't we? We just want people to agree with us that Romans 3.23 is correct. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Anyone can say that. Anyone can kind of agree with you on that. But it's far different to have your heart broken by seeing how holy God is and his law as an expression of that Holiness. He needed to see that he was a sinner. Because if you don't see that you're a sinner, you're not going to come to the Savior. And then Christ stressed repentance from the sin of covetousness. And faith in him as Lord. Verse 21. Looking at him... Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, why was Jesus saying that? Because what he was doing, he was pointing his finger, putting his finger on the very spot that the man needed to repent of. The man was covetous. He had broken the last, I think it's the last commandment. And Jesus knew it. And the man knew it. And what Jesus is saying is, you will not, you cannot come to me unless you have a change of mind. He said, I'm asking you, in fact, I'm telling you to forsake your former philosophy of gaining material things, gaining material things, nothing wrong with material things. It is wrong when you're covetous. It is wrong when you crave those things. It is wrong when you're greedy and and that's what your life consists of. And he says that you must repent of this sin the sin that you're aware of that I'm pointing out to you, and then come and follow me. Follow me as Lord. Submit to me. That's salvation. That's salvation on Christ's terms. That is the gospel according to Jesus. Not according to little pamphlets that we might give people. This is the gospel. Remember Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman? Same thing. He said, you've had five husbands. He said, go tell your husband. She said, I have no husband. You're right. You've had five husbands. You've got to deal with that sin, and I'm going to point it out to you. Most amazing thing of all this to me is that Christ let the man get away. Isn't that incredible? Do you know of many witnesses who would let a man like this get away? No. Verse 22 At these words, his face fell. He went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. You know what most of us would have done? Wait a minute, where are you going? Wait, wait, maybe you didn't understand. No, you... All right, if it's too difficult for you, then then just... Here, it's a gift. Pray a prayer, receive the gift, and don't miss out on heaven. No, I, I don't want to be confusing to you. Just believe. Listen, that man, if it was presented that way, would have snatched whatever it was given, and he would have made a false profession. He would have had no biblical assurance because he would have been lost. And the next time someone tried to deal with him, he would have said, I did that five years ago. And it didn't help. See, all man-centered. Jesus let him get away. I'm afraid many of us would not have let him get away. So some people who struggle with doubts of salvation have never really met Christ in a personal way. They're like this rich young ruler, and unfortunately they had somebody deal with them who didn't have the high standards of the gospel. We need repentance, forsaking of known sin. We need faith. In Christ, you see. Let me say this, in case I'm accused of preaching works as salvation. Repentance and faith are part of the same thing. It's just the flip side of the coin. Repentance is not something in addition to faith. The Bible says, "Believe." Okay, and I don't want you to think that we're adding something. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. It it, it all goes together. Repentance is a part of faith, and faith is a part of repentance, and you cannot separate the two or else you don't have true saving faith. So let me clear that up for you in case you think that I'm preaching another gospel. That is the gospel, and we need to proclaim it.
0: Phil Johnson, executive director of Grace to You, told about being a youth pastor in his first meeting with those teens. He soon learned that the behavior of the kids professing Christ was no different from that of their pagan friends. In some cases, it was worse. And that led him to wonder if salvation had ever happened. He started a series of studies in 1 John, and soon kids started to get saved. The parents were extremely upset that their kids, whom they had personally led to ask Jesus into their hearts as small children, were getting the idea that they had not been saved. But then the parents started to see the change in their kids' behavior, and they understood the difference between saving belief and simply repeating some words. Thanks for being here today for Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve has been the teaching pastor at Lakeside since 1981, and today's broadcast is part of a series of messages he delivered in his early years there. Since the tapes we digitized for this series are more than 30 years old, I hope you don't mind the lack of perfection and sound quality. This is just such an important topic that we wanted to share it with you. Verse by Verse is listener supported and we can't say enough about how thankful we are for the people who give so generously to help us keep these classes coming your way. Perhaps the broadcasts have blessed you and you'd like to help too. We have giving information on our website, versebyverseradio.org. We have today's and numerous previous broadcasts available for free downloading or streaming on the site as well. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. So far, Pastor Steve has covered four reasons we might struggle with the assurance of our salvation. One is disobedience. We struggle with sin, and that leads us to doubt the reality of our conversion. But the fact that we're struggling really should reassure us that we are saved. Another notion is that if we don't remember the date of our salvation, it's because it never happened. But the Bible never says we should remember the date. A third thing that can make us doubt our salvation is our feelings. Just because